Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good evening. We've um, stopped giving instructions uh, for the most part in the morning sitting, which I'm sure you uh, have, not sure, but probably have welcomed. Oh, great. Silence. No new instruction. Nothing new to incorporate. So many different instructions to remember, so many different ways to do this practice. And uh, I wanted to talk tonight about um, the fact that there are so many ways to do this practice, so many ways to uh, apply the teachings, so many decisions to make. Well, should I be just with the breath now, maybe I should do mental noting. Uh, how about choiceless awareness? No, I'll just show, I'll rest in the big mind in awareness of awareness. Oh, but what if I really need to focus and get concentrated and go back to my breath? You know. Does that ever cross your mind? Oh no, <laughs> maybe I should just notice my attitude. That's it, oh. So many decisions, how to do this practice. And then, of course, there's different ways to, um, uh, to bring a spirit to your practice, different attitudes of practice. Sometimes it's, you know, go in there and just really make every moment count, which is an inspiring way to practice. Heroic effort, one, one of my teachers used to uh, talk about. Heroic effort. If your leg feels like it's falling off, just note it. Note it. <laughs> falling off, falling off. You know. <laughs> Something like that. See if you can, what did he say? Crawl like you're, uh, like you're in a uh, in a award for the uh, for the infirmed, and you can just barely move. That was that's an instruction, and it's powerful when you when you do it that way with a kind of lightness of heart. Uh, <laughs> practice like your hair is on fire. That's another uh, another line. Uh, it's a it, it's a well-known line. Practice like your hair, because it's such an incredibly rare opportunity to not only be born a human, but to have the inclination, the opportunity to practice. You don't know when you're going to get it again, which is true. So just make every moment count. Then you hear a whole other approach, as Meningerji, one of my teachers and Joseph's, uh, one of Joseph's main, main teacher used to say, simple and easy, simple and easy, empty phenomena rolling on. Just relax, rest in the moment. Or from uh, a great uh, Tibetan master, Gendon Rinpoche, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, and everything happens by itself. A little different than practicing like your hair is on fire, isn't it? This, by the way, is, uh, is the highest teachings and uh, uh, Tibetan practitioners uh, 
uh, get to hear this after they've done 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 visualizations and 100,000 mantra recitations, and they say, just relax. (laughs) So there's lots of different directions, lots of different instructions, lots of different approaches. How do you know the right one? Who do you listen to? You go into an interview, and uh, and perhaps if it's a if it's a good interview, and you have something that you're working with, and you might hear a response from the teacher, uh, and uh, at times it happens where you say, "Gosh, they knew exactly what to tell me. How do they know just what to say?" But perhaps you don't realize that if you went to a different teacher, they might tell you a different instruction, a different response, and you come out saying, gosh, they knew exactly what to tell me, exactly what to say. Because there's lots of different ways to do this practice. And the Buddha recognized this as well, particularly around thoughts, you know. What do I do with all of these thoughts? What do I do when I get caught and I get snagged and uh, papancha takes over? Talked about papancha here, this proliferation of thoughts, the thoughts leading to other thoughts and more thoughts. How do you sort it out? There's a a cartoon I love, a Calvin Calvin and Hobbes cartoon first frame in the cartoon, here I am, happy and content. Did I read this? No, okay, here. Okay. A thought. Here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. Last frame. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. (laughs) We can create problems when there aren't problems. Or something is in our experience and our mind just goes off with it. Oh, she smiled at me. (gasps) VR. Vipassana romance, you are through courtship, marriage, kids, everything, you know. Or the VV. Did Carol talk about the VV? Or Vipassana vendetta, you know, just they are here to ruin my retreat. I know it, you know. And your mind can just take off. So the Buddha had some recommended responses I want to uh, include in this, uh, in this talk uh, about working with difficult thoughts. And uh, to show you just there's different strategies. So this is from um, the Majjhima uh, Nikaya Sutta number 20, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the discourse for the removal of distracting thoughts. And uh, I'll share with you some of his strategies. So the first, he says, uh, there is a case where unskillful thoughts imbued with desire, aversion, or delusion arise while one is referring and attending to a particular theme, skillful theme, mindfulness or metta, whatever. One should then, when that happens, one should then attend to another theme apart from that one connected with what is skillful while attempting to the other one apart from that one connected with with what is skillful, then those thoughts subside, are abandoned and subside. And then there's the the image, the the, uh, simile. Uh, Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg to knock out, drive out, and pull out a larger one. In the same way, if these unskillful thoughts arise while referring to one theme, one should attend to the other connected with what is skillful. 
and then the thoughts are abandoned and subside and with that abandoning the mind becomes steadied right within settled unified and concentrated so you've probably uh, experienced this for yourself maybe many times suppose you're having um, thoughts of anger and the mindfulness isn't strong enough to hold the anger what might be a skillful response anyone what's that thoughts of love metta an antidote if you're having a lot of doubt you might think of uh, something that inspires faith or if you're feeling um, a desire you might reflect on impermanence there's skillful antidotes and just saying okay I need to balance my mind I can't just be uh, be mindful of the the anger or the whatever the the mind state so I substitute a wholesome thought for that one but then he says that might not work so he says if those thoughts still arise then one should scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts these thoughts of mine are unskillful they will result in stress and as they are, one is scrutinizing the drawbacks those thoughts are abandoned and subside just as a young woman or a man fond of adornment would be horrified and humiliated and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung from their neck <laughs> in the same way if these unskillful thoughts still arise you should scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts <laughs> truly these thoughts are unskillful and result in stress don't go there basically that's what he's saying don't go there and perhaps you've had that experience too where you just you've seen this theme over and over you know the whatever the the top 10 tune is that's coming on and maybe at times you have the the opportunity to reflect do I really want to go there again do I really want to jump onto into this movie and just get lost for the next 45 minutes or two days you know no I've been there I've gone through this and I think I, I said in one of the um uh, Q and A's. Sometimes, if you put a uh, a frame around the thought, oh, relationship thoughts, oh, work thoughts, oh, um, not good enough thoughts, whatever they happen to be, and if you can see that theme and name it, you might give yourself a chance before you jump on the thought train or in the movie and say, I don't need to go there. So, skillful, right? He says, it still might not work. Okay, on to the third. There's five altogether. He says, if those unskillful thoughts still arise while scrutinizing the drawbacks, one should pay no mind and no attention to these thoughts. When paying no mind and no attention, they are abandoned and subside. Just as a person with good eyes, not wanting to see forms that had come into range, would close one's eyes and look away, in the same way, if those unskillful thoughts still arise, one should pay no mind and no attention to those thoughts. And as paying no mind and no attention to them, they will abandon and subside, and the mind will become settled, unified, and concentrated." This is the Buddha saying this, this strategy is sometimes called applying forgetfulness and inattention. Now, you might say, yeah, well, good luck. Easier said than done to pay no attention. But actually, what the instruction is, instead of paying attention to that theme that's going on, turn your attention elsewhere 
like listening to sounds or noticing uh, a place of ease in the body or just knowing that you're sitting here, feeling your body on planet Earth. Or if you're feeling a pain in your body and it's persistent and you're getting really tired, you don't have to stay with it because it's predominant. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm supposed to be with what's most predominant. No, not so. The mind becomes fatigued and confused and contracted and lost. It's more skillful to just turn your attention elsewhere and notice some place that's not hurting or open up to sounds or be with the breath or whatever is supportive. This is different from the first one. The first one is substituting an, a wholesome thought for an unwholesome, for a wholesome reflection for an unwholesome thought. This is just noticing, turning your attention someplace else. Okay. Still might not work. On to the fourth. If those unskillful thoughts still arise while paying no mind and no attention to them, one should attend to the relaxation of thought fabrication with regard to those thoughts. And while attending to relaxing, they are abandoned and subside. And here's the analogy. Just as the thought would occur to someone walking quickly, why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? And so, he walks slowly. And then the thought might occur to him, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I stand? So he stands. Then the thought occurs, why am I standing? Why don't I sit? So they sit down. And then the thought occurs to him, why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? It's getting better and better, isn't it? <laughs> and so they lie down. And in this way, giving up the grosser posture, posture, taking a more refined one, in the same way those unskillful thoughts attending to the relaxation of the thought fabrication, uh, they ab are abandoned and subside. And this is another strategy that you've probably used yourself. Wow, I'm getting really tight here. I need to just get some space, okay? How many people have used that sometime today? Curious, yeah, good. This is really skillful. Oh, I don't have to turn up the jets all the time. Sometimes it can be the most skillful thing to do to just get a little bit of space and relax a bit. As we've been saying since the beginning of the retreat, relaxation is the key because it creates an ease in the mind and the heart so you can see clearly. But it still might not work. So on to the fifth. Get ready. If those unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to the relaxation of the thought fabrications, then with teeth clenched, and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with awareness. <laughs> As with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one is beating down, constraining, and crushing the mind with awareness, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. And here's the analogy. Just as a strong person seizing a weaker, just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, constrain him, and crush him in the same way if these unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to relaxation with regard to them with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, should beat down, constrain, and crush the mind with awareness. And as he, they are doing so, the thoughts are abandoned and subside, and the mind settles, unifies, and is concentrated. Now you might be scratching your head saying, what the heck is going on? But actually, 
you might have your own experience of this as skillful means as well. And you have to remember that the Buddha was from the warrior caste. So there are lots of warrior images. But what I get from that and what I've seen in people's practice, if you do that with aversion, you are just tightening and contracting the mind and the heart and in a battle and a struggle. But if you can do it with wisdom and clarity and mm, as sometimes it's called tough love, you know, where a parent is about to, sees their child running out in the street and grabs, grabs them saying no, or about to touch a stove, no. Oh, okay. But doing it from a place of loving kindness and real, mm, the sword of wisdom, Manjushri's sword of discriminating wisdom that says, enough, no. It can be skillful. Not as your, notice it's not the first strategy. You know, it's kind of like when all else fails, you might say, no, enough. How many people have used that in a, in a skillful way in their own practice saying, enough now, let's, let's get back to, to doing our practice. Yeah. See, so you, you have these tools in your toolkit as it, as it is. And it's, it's good to see that the Buddha didn't say, Here's the, the right way to do it. Now, he did say, go for mindfulness first. But sometimes the mindfulness isn't going to be strong, so you use these other strategies. So you hear that, and you say, well, how do I know the right one? There's no one right way or formula. And if the question comes, am I doing it right? It's just another thought. Jack uh, Cornfield wrote this uh, wonderful book called, it's now called Living Dharma. It was originally called Living Buddhist Masters. 12 different Thai and Burmese uh, Theravadan masters who shared their approach to practice. And you read that book, and they all have their own way of doing practice, a unique way. That's why they're in the book. Some of them are saying, this is the real way to practice. And some of our, them are saying, this is my way that I practice, which I find much more um, trustable. But you read it one after another after another, and not only do you see all these different methods, but you start to see there's no one right way. And that goes also for um, very profound uh, Dharma concepts, you know, as has come up here in some of the questions. Well, is awareness just impermanent and coming and going? Or is awareness the ground of being? Is it the unconditioned? Is it always here? Joseph wrote a wonderful book on this called One Dharma, where he was scratching his head saying, they say this, they say this, and now on this theme they say this, they say this. He, it's a beautiful book, trying to put it all together. And you know what his conclusion was? Uh, I don't want to um, uh, deter you from reading the book because it's all worthwhile, but here's the final conclusion, who knows? <laughs> who knows? All skillful means. So with all of these different instructions and different possibilities and different ways to practice and different attitudes, who do you trust? Who can you trust? Guess who? It all comes down to your own investigation. 
you're listening to yourself a lot anyway, you might as well learn to listen to yourself wisely and just see, oh, what's the truth for me in this moment? And here's a profound teaching. For me, it w- this was the, 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 the cincher, uh, the clincher that got me to practice um, the Kalama Sutta, which uh, probably many of you are familiar with, uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya, where the Buddha comes into this, comes through this village, and um, they've heard that he's this great teacher, teaching his his Dharma, his doctrine. Um, but they say before he starts, they say. You know, a lot of teachers come through this village and all of them are proclaiming that they know the truth and they have the truth to share and we should believe them. Now you're saying you know the truth. You know, how, do you, how do we know who to believe? It gets really confusing and there's a lot of uncertainty and doubt. And this is his response. This is from Andy Olensky's translation. He says, "Mm, it is indeed fitting, Kalamas, to be uncertain. It's fitting to doubt. For in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. But when you would know Kalamas for yourselves, These things are unhealthy. These things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline towards harm and suffering. Then, Kalamas, you should reject them if you don't want to suffer. And then he goes on a little further and says, and when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, these things are healthy. These things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline toward welfare and happiness. Then Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them. Notice he says, not by acquiescing to views that you prefer in there. Not, hmm, yeah, this is what I believe. I'm going to go with that one. When he says, when you know for yourselves, and Andy puts that in italics, by the way, meaning when you have tested it directly in your own experience and have seen, oh, this is what happens when I do this, or when I explore it this way, or when I try this out, ah, this is really wholesome and healthy. Oh, when I try it this way, this is so so useful. Or when I get lost in just trying to figure out and struggle and, and, and spin in my mind, uh, it's not so helpful. Oh, how many times do we have to do that before it, it kind of sinks in? Oh, figuring out maybe isn't the way. But you're, every time you see it, if you're taking it in one step more deeply, it's not wasted. There's nothing wasted as long as you keep on learning. So this application of direct experience allows you more and more to trust yourself. Well, or to trust in your own internal experience. Because it's kind of tricky when you say, oh, I'll just trust myself because you've got all these different selves that are telling you different things. No, you should really do it this way. Oh, you might be wrong. Maybe do this way. So how do you know how to even go inside and listen? I used to get really 
um, anxious and doubting if if it was just up to me to figure it out. Oh, I didn't trust myself and I and I could fool myself easily. So there's something deeper than trusting yourself and that is the place that's not selfing, the place that has a connection to the, um, the truth of things, what Ajahn Chah called uh, our Buddha knowing, trusting our Buddha knowing, which is different than James knowing and being clever, but that place that we, we know that's different from analysis and just allowing enough space for the wisdom to be heard. You know, a few nights ago I talked about Milarepa here, didn't I? Just uh, listening to, to the truth. And that's what we're, we're doing here, learning how to listen more and more inside to that ring of truth. This is uh, Michelangelo. When someone lavished praise on him after he uh, created the amazing masterpiece, David. And he, he brushed aside the compliment and he said, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. Isn't that a beautiful image? There's a Buddha right in you. That's when we started this retreat and we took refuge in the Buddha. It wasn't just that figure, that man who lived 25, 2600 years ago. It's taking refuge right in you that you have the same potential for awakening that he had and you have that um, seed of, of freedom and clarity and wisdom that all we need to do is keep watering and nurturing and listening and there it is. Um. This is from uh, Nyoshul Kempo, great uh, Tibetan master. Mm. Buddha nature in, in the uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana, they talk about Buddha nature, that same refuge in, in the Buddha, the Buddha within. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. And uh, here's the, the great uh, Zen master Wang Po who says, your true nature is something never lost to you even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. This pure mind shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But most people in the world do not awake to it regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. And blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance within. <clears throat> if they would only eliminate all conceptual thoughts in a flash, that, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. So how do we get in touch with this Buddha right inside? I thought I'd share with you um, 
a few of my own um, strategies or methods or invitations to see what's right inside of you. Mm. First of all, just as Huang Po said, um, not to get caught in our what we see here uh, and, and, and sense and think as the truth. There's something deeper and our figuring out, I've mentioned this before, our figuring out just gets in the way. And remember I went from here down to here, from the head to the heart. There's a beautiful line in uh, the third Zen patriarch it says, Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. I, I love that line. Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Have you seen that for yourself when something connects and there's this insight and there's that experience of, ah, oh, aha. There's a kind of surprise there. If you're having a theory and a hypothesis and saying, well, let's see if I'm right, and then it turns out to be right, you just end up patting yourself on the back saying, pretty clever, yeah. But in order to have an awakening, an experience with news that says, oh, look at that, it's because you weren't thinking your way through, it just manifested and became revealed. Because there's enough space and enough willingness to let go of your mind to see the truth, to not only see the truth, to feel the truth. And this takes trust in letting go of your analytical mind. That's the beauty of mindfulness, the amazing mystery of it, that if you keep on paying attention one moment after another after another, after a while, there's space and life reveals itself to you and the heart opens and you see things in a new way that you hadn't seen before. And you might think, oh, well, it worked that time, but let me really think about this some more. You know, If you keep on trusting in mindfulness, it keeps on giving you gifts. Now, there are places and, and times, I just want to uh, put in a, a little mm, corollary to this. Sometimes we are moved by seeing something in a very new way. And you don't need to say, better let go of it because, uh, because I've got my mindfulness practice to do. When you are rocked by a deep insight, you, you don't have a choice whether you're gonna reflect on it. It's news and, you're, and it's skillful to reflect and let it, let it register. But be careful because when you start to play it over and over again from the 87th angle, yeah, that really did happen to me in junior high. And you're saying it like two days later, you've gone too far. Then you're just, it's not news anymore. But there is a place for wise reflection of a, of a new insight. But the mindfulness itself can be trusted to uh, keep revealing. So that's one thing, to trust in mindfulness. Another, as I think we talked about before here, to learn how to listen. And I, I think I mentioned it already. If the thoughts are coming through with a finger wag, this is not wisdom. This is just the contracted, fearful mind. You better not blow it. You better... Uh, you better do it this way. Um, 
That is not wisdom. So the tone is probably coming through in a much more supportive and kind and um, aligned way. And your body can feel it too. If there's contraction or tension in the body, that's a sign that there's something a little bit off. Not always, but often. It's a little bit off. And sometimes there's things to be wary of and watchful of that you want to respect. But if it's just this low-level contraction and you don't know how you got there, not to judge it, it's just part of being human, but to see, oh, I'm getting a little bit tense and tight here. Ah, what if I just invite ease and relaxation or use one of those strategies that creates some space? So you can learn to listen to the degree of contraction in the body or in the mind and remember there's a possibility of relaxation and kind kindness. And that's where as I've been saying to some people in the, if you use the mental noting, there's a really um, powerful aspect of mental noting that I encourage you to pay attention to. And that is the tone of the noting. Because you can note Say you're seeing judgments in the mind and you're noting judging, judging, <laughs> judging. This is not going to free you of judgment. But if you note, oh, judging, judging. I don't think I did this here yet. I'll, I'll, I shared it with a few people and some, and some of you have heard me say this before. My main practice for about two years was just noting the judging with kindness. And so this is what I'd do when I'd see a judging thought, because I have a lot of judging. I bet I have more, a better judge than you. <laughs> no, just kidding. But it was really a predominant in theme, and I saw, I, I better do something about this. So this is what I did for about two years. Uh, try this. You can close your eyes so you're not feeling self-conscious. And suppose you have a really mm, nasty judging thought, whether about yourself or about others or whatever. And now take your hand and put it on your cheek. And first feel the tenderness there. And as if the kindest, wisest being Kuan Yin or some wise grandfather or grandmother is doing the noting, just say silently to yourself in the kindest voice as you caress your cheek, oh, judging, judging. And let yourself feel it for a moment. It's okay, dear, judging. Okay, you're gonna open your eyes. That's how I recommend noting judgment. That was my main practice for about two years. And it wasn't like I did this each time, but it became, the, na the note became so practiced that uh, when I'd forget, I'd put my hand here. But otherwise, I would just, um, it started to become natural response. And then it was, oh great, another judgment, a chance to practice compassion. Because then every time there was a judging, a judgment, I was calling on the Kuan Yin right inside, <coughs> or the wise being. So learning how to listen and particularly noticing the tone. Mm. Something else that holds the wisdom that you can use as a, as a container to trust. Uh, and it's been mentioned here. Um, just having a commitment to integrity and sila. You know? 
the the uh, wholesome states of Hiri and Otapam have been mentioned here. Moral shame and moral dread, or otherwise known as conscience, that we can trust in that and help stay connected to our goodness. It's right in there. That's the container. Is there harm to myself or others, or is this beneficial? And it, although it's right in there, sometimes um, it's, it's hard to find, particularly, I just want to mention something in our, in our Western culture um, that uh, contributes to this um, challenge to connect with our own goodness. And that is the Judeo-Christian story, creation story, where we were cast out of Eden because we committed sin, original sin. And I have tremendous respect for both, uh, both religions, Judaism and Christianity. And there's in deep, deep teachings. But to have that as the basis of the human experience that we somehow messed up at the beginning and if we repent enough, we might be forgiven and be let back into Eden. This is really, uh, really a big one. It's very different than say in, in the Eastern um, way of holding things that we are already the Buddha or we are already uh, pure, pure beings and it's just our obscurations that get in the way. And we're so impressionable, little, little babies taking in that story. It's a big one. And so, of course, there'd be some conditioning to, to, to work through. And at the same time, there are beautiful teachings. For me, one of the highest teachings of all, I might have mentioned it already, is Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, they know not what they do. That his message was so, uh, in, uh, the central message is one of forgiveness. Ah, oh, you know, thank goodness. But we can forget. Mm. And when we tune into that central place of goodness and call on it and, or are inspired by it, then uh, we're aligned with the truth and we can trust that. Mm. I uh, recently uh, was with a, a friend who w shared a story that's, that's really struck, uh, stayed with me. Uh, he works in the um, emergency care in a psychiatric um, section of a hospital. And uh, he sees people who are going through crisis and many uh, who are um, strung out on drugs and or who have attempted suicide. Um, and he was sharing this story. Um, I said, well, wow, tell me, how do you stay centered through that? You know, because he, he says he just, he loves his job. I said, wow, really? That's, how do you do it? And he said, oh, sometimes you just have amazing experiences. I said, oh, oh could you tell me one? And he told me the story of this woman who he was, uh, he was assigned who had tried to commit suicide and he went into her, uh, into the room and she was completely uh, uh, distressed and uh, said there's no reason to go on living. And, um, and he didn't know how to get through. And she, when she told him his story of her partner who was 
into crack who stole from her and uh, and she she was on uh, some heavy duty drugs and all, all kinds of this person died and that person was you know had abandoned her and all that and it sounded pretty heavy and he didn't first know what to do and then he noticed a bible on on the bed in the room and he said oh is is that your bible she said oh yeah he, he said, do you read it a lot? She said, I carry it with me wherever I go. And then he said, hmm, do you have any favorite passages? He, she said, I've got lots of passages. And then he said, oh, could you, could you tell me one of them? And she said, well, there's, there's this, uh, one of my favorites is this psalm. And then... Um, she, he said, oh, could you read it? And she was, she started to read it and uh, started to, uh, to come back to life and just feeling the words. And actually she, she kind of, the trance was broken for a few moments and, uh, and then they were talking a bit more and then she started going down, down. He said, oh, could you read me uh, uh, another passage and she read it and started to come back again and then he decided to um, do this practice Tibetan practice uh, where you imagine the good caring person um, who loves you and he led her through that he said who's a good who's the person that you trust more than anyone she said oh jesus and then he as he led her through it he said oh just imagine what jesus would say to you and she didn't realize that it was supposed to be a silent experience and she started talking as if jesus was talking and as she was talking more and more and feeling the spirit of Jesus, he just started coming through her. And it was like my friend was getting a darshan, you know, just and, and talking about the power and the glory and this. And the whole room turned to light. It was amazing. Isn't that amazing? Even the most confused, bereft, despairing can access that place of love and wisdom and clarity. And there we are, just tuning into that channel. This is available to all of us. But we can forget. And so we have to keep on remembering and studying this mind-body process until we see through the confusions and the, um, the distortions and the dukkha to awaken that Buddha within. There's a beautiful teaching from Zen Master Dogen, one of my favorite teachings, and he says, describing this process, <clears throat> To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. Now just unpacking that a bit. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study, understand the teachings, this is the laboratory for us to explore. We study this mind-body process. To study the self is to forget the self. At some point, you see through all your, at times, see through all your personal drama and your stories and this happened and that's why I do this and, and it can be an incredibly um, opening, revealing things, a thing. Oh, that's why I get caught here. That's what, and 
that's part of this process to really, you know, uh, all the memories that come up, all the, the past that comes up, you see the conditioning and how it's been formed. And as you see it, you see through it and you see through this small sense of self that we've been creating. And as you study the self, this mind-body process, you forget the self. You're no longer bound in hoping everybody will validate you and say uh, you're really okay. Oh, that was so much extra. Of course I'm okay. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? Maybe it's an amazing shift. Of course I'm okay. How could I have missed it? It seems so ordinary, and yet it means everything. Oh, I'm really okay. For me, the most profound understanding uh, of, of, of metta was when I saw myself through somebody else's eyes, and it wasn't like, you are fantastic. It was, you know, you're okay. That was it. <laughs> That was all I needed. Oh my God, I really am okay. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. That is, when the self, the barrier is removed, you feel a connection to all of life. You feel part, there's no separation. Yeah, there's James and there's you, but on a whole other level, there's just life experiencing itself. No separation. To be intimate with all things. And this is what we're doing. As we more and more are seeing through the, the history and the personality and the story, we then see a whole other dimension of reality. How it's all changing how holding on to changing experience is sure prescription for suffering. How this mind and body process itself is change. Ah, there's freedom. And then your, your practice is opening on a whole other level than am I okay? And they're both important. You can't bypass one for the other. But to be right where you are and know life keeps on revealing itself to you. And the way to do this is to see for yourself in the chants, one of the, the, the most important words for me in one of the chants here, ehipasiko opanayako. Ehipasiko means come and see for yourself. The Dharma is open-handed, waiting for all to see. Come and see for yourself. And with that, you can learn more and more to take in all the information and all the support and guidance. You don't want to just reject uh, uh, teachers' guidance, but put it into practice. There's a lot of, you know, if, you, if, if one knows the territory, then it, it, it can, it's, a good, it's good to, to take in and see, oh, what's your take on this? But ultimately, it comes down to yourself. So this is the Buddha's words on this important understanding, if I can find it here, which I'll close with. Therefore, he said this to Ananda, Therefore, Ananda, be ye lamps unto yourself. Be a refuge to yourselves. Take to yourselves no, other, no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall betake themselves to no external refuge, but holding fast to the truth is their lamp. 
and holding fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be eager to learn. You are all eager enough to learn. You wouldn't be here for one or two months if that weren't the case. So celebrate that. Take all the wisdom. I take all the help I can get, but ultimately, here's the Buddha right inside of you. How wonderful. So let's just sit for a moment. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.